Lingard is joining in, and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof, and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Hello and welcome to the Bruised Banana FC match review number two, where we're going to be talking about an emotionally draining 2-2 draw with Liverpool at Anfield. My name is Luke and you can find me on Twitter at Eckelken and I'm joined by Ben, who you can find on Twitter at Ben Browning Free. We took the lead in the eighth minute of the game just to concede the equaliser in the 87th minute. It felt like for a long way in that second half, we were strangling fate to get to those three points. Or maybe it's better to specifically say Aaron Ramsdale was strangling fate to get us to those three points. But I think the game showcased everything that showed why Arsenal can be champions and also showcased why at the end of the day, we're still mortals. So I think the first question I'm going to ask you, Ben, is a bit of a cliche one, but it's, is that one point gained or two points dropped? I think it's two points dropped um, simply from where we were. Obviously, if someone has said to you, you take, you get 2-2 two, two at, at Anfield and they miss a penalty, you'd be saying, yeah, I'll bite your hand off for that. But if someone says to you, you're 2-0 up, controlling the game, and then you draw 2-2 two, two and they miss a penalty, it does very much feel like both sides are annoyed that they've dropped points because both sides could have won it. And I mean, even when you look at the, the Martinelli chance at the end, which I think is going to haunt a lot of people um, when you know, when when it comes down to if we miss out on the title by a couple of points, so I think that ultimately it's going to come down to an overwhelming feeling of two points dropped rather than a point gained. Yeah, no, I do agree. To be honest, I think when you do go two goals up in any game, you feel like a professional team doesn't let the other team back in the way we did. Um, it just felt like. At one point, Liverpool were dead and buried. We had them exactly where we wanted them. They were lashing out. They were unconfident. They were sixes and sevens. They were out of formation, out of position. It felt like we were just going to go and create more chances. Um, and then the next talking point is, is a bit of a divisive one that I've seen online um, and from uh, the conversation that you and me have had in some of our group chats is the the Jack of Flashpoint. And... Um, the thing I want to reference to the Jack of Flashpoint is obviously he has the, the scuffle with Trent. Opinions go up and down on this. I think that there's a balanced view, in my opinion, that can be had on it. Um, but first of all, I want to see um, what your opinion on it, Ben. So I guess that the question I'm going to ask you of this is, do you think that was a defining point of the game? Do you think that that was the thing that changed the game? Do you think that it was something that um, eventually kind of turned the, the game in Liverpool's favour? No, but I do think it was it was part of that sort of five minute spell, wasn't it, where Liverpool sort of got themselves back into the game. And I think in isolation it's not an issue. Because it's Granite Jack and because Liverpool have scored afterwards, then it's become an issue. But in isolation that was not something that had really any effect. You know, both players got booked, there wasn't a massive change in the crowd. Um if they hadn't scored before half time, for instance, like if that that chance by Salah had been missed, I don't think we would have seen anything like the second half that we saw. It was more, you know, it wasn't because of Granit Xhaka, and I think he gets a really unfair rep. Um, I've seen play. I've seen, I think Sky spent the whole half time debating whether or not he'd, 
you know, messed up and Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher were saying, oh, we can't afford to do that at Anfield and all this stuff. And I do sort of get where they're coming from. Like it did, I, I understand that there's history where Arteta and Klopp had their little coming together last season when we lost 4-0 or whatever it was. And that got the crowd up. But this was just different. It, was, it wasn't the same. There wasn't the crowd reaction. Um, and it just felt like if it had not been Granit Xhaka, then far less would have been made of that situation. And then, you know, getting people afterwards saying, oh, he's blown it, he's a hothead, he, you know, he might cost Arsenal the title. It's all it's all bollocks. Like, Arsenal, that could have happened. Arsenal could have gone on to win 4-0. Everyone, no one would be saying, oh, you know, it's his fault, blah, blah, blah. There's just ha- it just so happened that that comes just before they score when they've been knocking on the door anyway. So it's not like it's a, a, a single switch has been flicked because that didn't really happen until half-time when I, I imagine Klopp gave them a proper rollicking and, well, Andy Robertson got elbowed by the liner, which probably didn't help, you know. Then then there's that siege mentality coming in. But from Jack, I don't... I just... I don't know about you. It just felt like it was a lazy narrative that people wanted to spin to try and find reasons for why Arsenal collapsed. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's definitely truth to what you say. I definitely think the Sky analysts of it was been very lazy. And obviously, it's very targeted, isn't it? Because Xhaka is a bit of a kind of electric rod for for these types of moments. And whenever they happen, even in kind of very simple and innocuous moments, they're going to be blown up by by people like Sky because they still see Xhaka as that hot-headed Swiss midfielder that's come in and got red card after red cards. Um, they don't really respect him for what I want to say is the kind of the disciplinary transformation he's had over the last few years where he's actually been a lot more reined in. The one thing I will say about it is that whilst I agree with you, it's not one switch. And I don't think you can kind of blame, you know, the complete changing of what what the game felt like on this one moment. I do think that before the game, Arteta, when he's talking to the players, one of the main things he's going to say to them is they're going to try and get these reactions out of you because it changes the mentality of the team. It changes the mentality of the crowds. And I think that it's one of these moments that this is one of the precise moments is that if you give them the opportunity to make it thunder and lightning, big drama at Anfield, then they will. And it does help them, even if it helps them in a little way. And it's not just Xhaka, because I think it's also the reaction after Xhaka, because obviously the goal happens very, very soon after the Xhaka moment happens. And would that goal happen with or without the Xhaka moment? It's impossible to tell. It'd be very unfair for me to say if Xhaka doesn't do that, then the goal doesn't happen. Because obviously football works like it's a butterfly effect, isn't it? It's this chain reaction. So it's unfair for me to pin that on Xhaka. Um, but I think the, the the unlucky thing for Xhaka in this thing is he does the wrong thing, in my opinion. Whether you think that's innocuous or not, him rising to Trent is, in my opinion, the wrong thing. And then they get the goal very early after that. And then after that, it felt like the team just kind of lost the heads a bit, just overall, like hmm. Jesus yeah. was was screaming and shouting whilst he was kind of getting led off the pitch after getting a knee to the back. Um, it just felt like we lost our composure at that point, where it felt like if we could just kept our composure, and, and you are right when you're saying they're knocking the dogs, they were. Salah was in on goal um, a, a bit before that, so it's not like they had absolutely nothing. They did have chances. But it just felt like if we could have kept our heads until halftime, keep it at 2-0, then the second half goes so much differently. And oh, yeah, I agree. It's, it's whilst I 
we'll, I'm not going to sit here and say that Xhaka reacted to Trent and that's why the game completely turned. I'm just saying that it was a spark and you know, you, you like a spark at Anfield, you can't really complain when you see the fireworks go up. But I completely agree in the sense that Sky are going to latch onto that. Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher are going to latch onto that because it's a narrative that they can kind of point fingers at someone. And that is generally what Sky do. But I know this is something that is kind of, um, kind of um, divided opinion along us. I, I do think there's a balance. Between that. I think you can, you can barely say that Jacker shouldn't have rose to it and also fairly say that the team should have reacted to them getting a goal back better. Um, but I think but you can, you can also say like you mentioned Jesus and I think, if if Jack is if, so, if if Jesus is you know getting angsty as well, there's an there's an onus on him as much as anyone else and the other players 100%. that rose to it to try and calm themselves down because they'll, they'll have been told the same thing. If Arteta's mm. saying to everybody, "Don't rise to the thing, don't rise to Liverpool," you know whatever, and then there's one spark, that's fine. You can put out one spark. It's the consistent little niggling sparks that came up afterwards, you know, with the Jesus issue and a couple of other areas. I know Ben White had a little go. So it does it does feel like that Xhaka moment has been magnified because it's Xhaka. But there are other mom- there are other moments that we could have prevented and could have changed the outcome that we just sort of let our guard down a little bit. Because for 30 minutes we were all over them. We did, I said on the preview, I said, you know, I don't think they're a particularly good football team. And if you play the team that are eighth instead of the team at Anfield, then you win the game. And that's what we did for the first half hour. We're all over them. And then we let it become playing and playing at Anfield. And we let the crowd come into it. And we let the fact that it was Liverpool away come into it. And then it became a different game. Yeah, no, I think, I think that is definitely right. And I think... As you say, Xhaka is maybe the first culprit, but he isn't the last culprit. And I think Jesus would hold the same type of blame because Xhaka and Jesus are two of the, the senior heads in the team. And especially yeah, Jesus they should, they because he's a winner. Do you know what I mean? Like Jesus has come in as this mercurial trophy winning beacon that has kind of like almost kind of transformed this team and this team's mentality. Like you just heard all the stories in preseason of him coming in and um, seemingly almost kind of convincing a lot of the team that we can go for the title and then looking at where we are now. But it does feel like like he is another person that at that point in time, just keep your heads because you don't turn Anfield away into a brawl. You don't do it. It's um it just feels like it'd be so anti what the the plan would have been, which would have been just to keep it calm, keep it quiet, keep the crowd down as much as we can, which as you say, we did so, so well for half an hour. And I think that is one of the best performances I've seen at Anfield for the first half an hour. Because one of the things to remember is as bad as Liverpool have been this season, they've still only lost one game at Anfield this season. They've still, I think they had won nine out of the 13 games they've played there this season um, before yeah. yesterday. So, they haven't considered a goal in 2023 at Anfield. Yeah. In the so, League, yeah, so as, as bad as they've been, and as you say, vulnerabilities there, which we exploited. So they're not vulnerable at Anfield. It just, it's more that Anfield gives them the extra dimension, that extra gear to go to. I just felt like we almost... Gave them a bit of a kick up to get to that gear, maybe a bit earlier than than they needed to. But um, uh, probably one of the massive positives of it was Gabriel Martinelli, who started the game fantastically, scored the first goal, uh, an inch perfect cross to get the assist to Jesus. It felt like in that first opening half an hour, he was kind of taking Trent to the cleaners. Um, uh, what do you make of him? Because he feels to me like he has 
more so than a lot of the players in the squad, the capacity to be that big game player. Because we've seen in previous big games, remember in the match at home against Man City last season, he was fantastic. Um, when he has these big games and the games get a little bit stretched and the space kind of really appears, it just feels like he frightens teams because in a lot of games where we control and we're trying to break teams down, we're going a lot on the right-hand side. We're kind of relying on Saka to kind of dribble through five, six, seven players. Um, we don't really go to Mardinelli, who's more of like, I guess, the counter-attacking option. But in these games where the counter-attacking is more viable, we tend to go to Martinelli a bit more and and he really kind of shows his quality and his mentality in these games. So um, what did you think of Martinelli yesterday and and how do you feel like his evolution as a player has been over the course of this season? Oh, he's just he's just a chaos magnet in the best possible way, isn't he? He's <laughs> he's plays everything at 100 miles an hour and it makes it so difficult because he's so technically good as well. It makes it so difficult to defend against and... You're right, it is in big games where he really comes to the fore, I think. Maybe because he's got a bit more space and maybe because we use him a bit more. But he is just one of those players that really excels in on the bigger stages. And I think that is, you know, that's excellent for Arsenal. Not just because we're playing Champions League football next season, barring some indescribable collapse. Uh, but also, you know, He's still only 21. I think he's up to 14 goals in the league this season. He's going so under... I think he's going so under the radar because of how good Saka is. Yeah. But on the other side, Martinelli's also really, really, really good. Like, you have to double up on Arsenal's wingers and that leaves so much space in the middle if we can exploit it. So he brings an, a really nice balance to that attack with, as I say, the amount of chaos that he brings. Saka's so much more measured. Still, you know, still equally as excellent, but he feels like his game is much more measured and controlled, whereas Martinelli feels like he can make anything happen because of how fast he plays and how exciting he is to watch. He's when he gets the ball, you feel like something will happen, which is you know it's a nice it's a nice feeling to have after seasons of Pepe and William. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's just one of those players, isn't he? That I mean, that cross to Jesus, it doesn't feel like it's really being talked about much, but. When you hit a cross and it hits someone of Jesus's height in the middle of Van Dyke and Canate, that has mm. to be an inch perfect cross. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it's that's not a hard person to hit as, as bad as as the defending was. Um, that is a, a hard cross to hit, especially when you're kind of getting over Van Dyke for it. Um, this is a player that I think still has a lot of development to go. Still a bit raw, I think he's a bit of a man on polished diamond at times. Still a bit yeah. too head down. But I think this well, is a player. I think, I think at the end, at the end of the game, he showed that you know when he's always mm. in ninety third minute or whatever, and yeah. the last attack of the game, it's three on two. He just needs to play that pass either to Saka if he can't. He need, but he needs to get it right. He needs to keep the ball for us to have an excellent chance. As I say, it's three on two. Trossard to his left. He can play it five yards to Trossard, and our chances like that. We still got an excellent chance of scoring. That he tries the harder ball, doesn't get it right. But, you know, I don't know whether that was so much him trying to be the guy for Arsenal, which is an excellent thing for him to want to be, or whether that was, as you say, a bit of inexperience and not knowing that, you know, how his fatigue might affect the way he plays that pass. And maybe he should give it to Trossard, who's got 30 minutes. You know, he's only been on the pitch 20 odd minutes. He's got plenty of energy, plenty of, like, a clear, clear vision in his mind of what he could do with it. And it would mm-hmm. it would have been so fitting if we'd won that topsy turvy game in that way because that was just 
in in between the chaos, there were some really really nice patterns in the second half. It's just we didn't capitalize on them. Yeah, it's. I think it ended up as a game of very very fine margins, and a lot of that was created by a second half that we didn't really ever get control of. I think that we go in at half time two one. Um, we hadn't had a good ending fifteen minutes to the first half, but we needed half time, and we got to half time still leading the game, and. It just felt like we had to come out in the second half, try and reassert our dominance. Just that first 10-minute period of, of the second half, just keep the ball a bit better. Um, just try and quiet it down a bit again. But it felt like, similar to like, obviously it's a different ball game because they were playing away at City for this one. But I remember City and Liverpool the the, the previous week, they go in a half-time 1-1. And um, it felt a lot like Liverpool were up and ready to go at the start of second half. And then Man City kind of get that killer blow right at the start of second half where they get that goal to make it 2-1, like less than 10 minutes into the second half. And Liverpool's, they just kind of fade after that, which obviously is different was in Anfield. But I just feel like, not that I was expecting us to score, I was just hoping for a bit of a, a high-level performance in the first 10 minutes because usually we're quite good out the gate. Um, but mm. it felt like, not just for the first 10 minutes, but for the entirety of the second half, Liverpool really kind of dominated us, dominated the ball. They pushed us back. Uh, why do you think that was? I think I think we started losing our duels and we just had far less ball security. Erdogan in particular, I think, sort of faded. He was very tidy in the second half, without, uh, in the first half, without being particularly outstanding, I thought. But, um, so in that second half, he drifted to the margins of the game. Um, and I just think that we lacked a little bit of I mean, it sounds stupid, but we lacked a bit of composure. We've been so good all yeah. season, but it just felt like... Um, it felt like, you know how Mikel Arteta was saying, oh, you know, there's only one place where I've ever lost my mind, and then all of a sudden it was 4-0, and you've got red shirts flying left, <laughs> right, and centre at Anfield. And it's just, it felt a bit like that on a lesser scale. Like, it was just... it, it Yeah, it felt like we suddenly went, oh, shit, we're at Anfield. It's 2-1. We need to adopt a siege mentality of our own and it meant that we didn't really necessarily think through everything that we did all the time so we played some nice football at times like we had some nice patterns but we just couldn't keep hold of the ball long enough and Liverpool to their credit were very good I think they pressed they pushed their defensive line up higher which sort of made it gave us less time in midfield to try and keep the ball and also bringing on Thiago I think was excellent for that in that he helped um, you know provide some control for them but we didn't do what we should have done to, you know, keep that game from descending into a a bombard on our own goal. Yeah, I, I think that it was a very un-Arsenal performance in the second half in the sense that we've had bad periods in, in games. Like, it happens. You can't be on it for 90 minutes all the time. But it has. it's been very rare that I've seen us be be that uncomposed for almost an entire 45 minutes where we didn't really ever get a good kind of 10, 15 minutes of, of possession under our belts. Um, it just felt like we just kept retreating and kept retreating. Maybe mm. the, the weight of the result kind of put on us because we knew that how the game had built up, it felt to us like if you can get the three points at Anfield, then you're almost invincible in a sense. Like that, that That's kind of one of the biggest um, things you can do to say we're going to be the title winners, we're going to be the guys. 
and maybe the weight of that kind of put on the players and they kind of reverted to something that Arsenal were guilty of a lot last season, which is going a goal ahead and then just not really playing as much and just kind of reverting yeah. a bit into shape and to shell. Yeah, I think that at 2-1, Arsenal's... Well, maybe, I'm speculating, but I think that maybe at 2-1, the reality of the situation at half-time dawned on them. They were probably told, you know, you're 2-1 up, don't do anything silly. And they face a very different Liverpool side to come out in the second half. And it was sort of a bit of, we can't throw this away, therefore we won't try anything necessarily. There are a couple mm-hmm. of, as I said, there are a couple of moments that defied that, but for the most part it was play safe, don't play pretty necessarily. And obviously it, it when that snowballs, then it just becomes a position where even if after 10 minutes you decide we can't sustain this, we need to start playing again. The, the momentum's gone and it's so hard to regain in games like that. When you've got the when the Anfield crowds up when Liverpool have got their tails up, when you're sort of shrinking on the pitch I guess it's so much harder to try and regain momentum in the game rather than you know try and sustain it when you've got it already yeah and I think one thing we can really kind of take some positives from is the people I know that support Liverpool told me that that's the sec- that second half is the best Liverpool have played in in months apparently like um they can't yeah, think of any yeah, point in in recent kind of like maybe even this season that that they've played to that level and Arsenal still came through it and obviously we need a bit of luck through that because obviously Salah missed a penalty um uh, Aaron Ramsdale I'm going to come up too soon made a few like really incredible saves but also there was a few moments for us where I felt like um we could have won it ourselves obviously we spoke about the Martinelli pass to Saka in the last minute that potentially could have put him one versus one for Allison. he didn't get it quite right that maybe the big one for me was the Gabriel header from the corner when it was still 2-1. <laughs> he has a free header um, about six shards out. And it just felt like all you have to do is not put that straight at Allison, yeah. And Anywhere then it's 3-1, the game's dead. Which is a shame, obviously. Gabriel was fantastic that game, by the way. So I'm not going to I'm not gonna throw shade at Gabriel because I think um, probably one of the best performers, um, maybe even other than Ramsdale, our man of the match, um, was probably Gabriel. I thought he was... Um, pretty colossal um but i think probably the next thing to talk about is the substitutions because that felt like something that for the most part arteta's got it right but there's been a few moments this season like uh like the manchester united away game where it felt like he went a bit too kamikaze a bit too soon maybe on that day it felt like he was going for park the bus so he brings on the other center back he's kind of slots in there um if they're going to go for crosses into the box, it makes sense. But it felt to me like if you're going to go there, go go full hog. You know what I mean? Like if if you're going to do that, if you're going yeah. to bring in, in Kiwia, then bring on Tierney for Zinchenko. Really lock down that side. Because as much as I love Zinchenko, and I think you can draw a lot of parallels with him and Trent, not in the sense that he's a defensive liability, because I think that'd be a bit too far. But I think... Zinchenko isn't great one versus one defending. That has been a problem. And we forgive him for it because he's so good in other areas of the pitch. And for me, it's a worthwhile sacrifice. But I do think that yesterday it felt like Gabriel was really kind of going out to that wing to try and defend against Salah. That was the plan for for, for, um, for us. So I was a bit surprised when we brought on a left-footed centre-back to play in the back three and we still see... Zinchenko faced up on that right wing with Trent, who, I mean, fantastic play from Trent Alexander-Arnold. You have to give him a lot of credit for that. But at the same time, 
it doesn't feel like you need to be a world-class defender to stop him being able to get through you like that. It was a big moment. Um, so I guess the question to you is, what did you think of the subs? Would you have gone more defensive at the point of the subs or you left it a bit longer? Um, do you agree with Odegaard for a centre-back at that point? Do you think Tini should come in early? What was, your, what was your thoughts? Do you think Arteta got it right or wrong? I think I think he, I think he got it wrong from what he wanted, but I'm also not sure that he had the resources that he wanted. Because looking at that game, what was really needed was a central player that could eat up the ground, win duels, put out fires, you know. And you look to the bench, and you and if Arteta's looking for that, then you go, oh, well, I've got Jorginho, who is very good in his own right for various ways, but in that game, you feel like he would just get bypassed very easily when we don't have a lot of mm-hmm. ball. Um, you have Fabio Vieira, who Arteta's already said will lose nine out of ten duels in the Premier League, but has his own qualities of you know different qualities. You got Smith Rowe, who has is yet to play ninety minutes and probably and definitely does his best work running away from his own goal. So you're down three subs already, and then you look and you go, well, who can I bring on? Because I'm sure I'm sure he's there at about sixty minutes, going, I I need to change something. Something needs to be tweaked here. But he's gone to his bench and he's gone. Well, I can't take off party because I can't bring on Georgina. I can't take you know I can't bring fresh legs on there because I, I don't have light for light replacements. So he's eventually brought on Kivio, who I what was his second Premier League appearance, third Premier League appearance. Yeah, something like that. It's not, it's not much. It's, is it's it? not. It's not what you want to be doing, is it? Not at Anfield, anyway. Yeah. Not at Anfield. Not when you've been dominated the whole half. It felt like we were missing some key options off the bench that maybe we'll have addressing in the summer. But it it felt like Arteta then went doing something's better than doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And maybe he overthought, maybe he got in his own head, but they were the I think they were the wrong change. I think most people would probably agree that inviting yet more pressure on from Liverpool was a bad idea. Um but then there were people who point to the the Martinelli pass at the end and the Saka chart, the Saka cross, they will say, you know, we were still in that game. It was just a case of maybe soaking up more pressure and then hitting them on the break. That, that was maybe our best chance of winning the game. I just think that they made us more conservative and less progressive mm-hmm. in a time where we maybe needed to try and wrestle back some control earlier on. You know, it got it. We let it slide to the point where it was then like, okay. We're getting bomb- we're getting hammered here. We need to bring on a defender. Whereas before, maybe we could have brought on a midfielder and switched things around slightly to make it slightly more, um, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like the end being slightly less predictable, where we just end up soaking up pressure. But that being said, as as I, as I mentioned, I'm not sure the options were there for Arteta to be able to do that in the way that he would have wanted to. So I, I think he made the wrong changes, but I don't know if there were right changes to make in the way that we want him to yeah I think it's tough isn't it because as you say if we have for argument's sake a Declan Rice or a Moises Caicedo to bring off the bench Mm. um, and someone mobile with energy that can really kind of affect and and stand up to the physicality of the game then that is a difference maker even if we've got a half-fit Saliba on the bench um, to bring on that could have been a difference maker so it's a shame that he wasn't fit enough for the yeah, match or, day or, squads. Or a Tommy Yassi. Or, or a Tommy Yassi. No, even an 100%. Any. 
Yeah, and just to some, be fair. Some, and only bring some energy into that midfield. You bring him on for Erdegaard, yeah, if necessary, you know. But you don't want to chuck a 32-year-old Jorginho, where physicality has never mm-hmm. been his strong set anyway, into that sort of... Yeah. You know, Thiago was controlling that midfield, and it felt like he would just get bypassed. And then his strongest assets, which are on the ball, we weren't getting enough of the ball to utilise properly. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think... Um... If Tommy Asu's fit, he probably comes on earlier in that game, to be honest, because oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the, the success he had I'll... against Salah at the Emirates, I think, um, yeah, he may have even started, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think, to be to be fair, right, um, El Nenny has a lot of limitations, but I think there is certain moments of certain games that do become El Nenny time, and I think that would have been an El Nenny type moment. Hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, like, it is what it is. I do think that probably the... the the biggest positive from this is that one of the people in, in the last few pods have actually been, uh, we've kind of given a, a fair amount of love to was Aaron Ramsdale. This is a player that has taken a while to fully convince people because as as much as his kicking has been showcased as top quality talent from pretty much day one, I think that he's had games where maybe he's not saved shots that you'd say a top keeper should save. And that question mark has been over him over can he kind of save Arsenal at points where Arsenal needs to be saved? And it felt like recently he's added a bit of consistency to his game. It felt like in the last month of playing, he's made big saves at big times. And that has all built up to what was an incredible last half an hour's performance at Anfield, where just off the top of my head, I'm thinking um, uh, multiple saves from Salah, the save from Nunez... Um, the the save at the death where Salah hits it, it gets deflected, which puts it even yeah, more top Canate. bins, and he still gets a claw to it. And then the save from Canate right at the death. I don't know really how much credit you can give him a penalty. Um, I, I know that he's probably doing his whole kind of shit house and Ramsdale talking to Pete person <laughs> thing before the pen, which is why he probably got the yellow cards. But it just uh, this guy saved us a point. And if we go on to win the title, then that game should be looked back at. 100 times over because without Aaron Ramsdale between the sticks that day, um, wow, man, like I honestly think that it could have not been embarrassing, but, you know, you're leaving up to the gods at that point. So uh, yeah. the, I think the brilliant thing we can talk about now and the other thing I'll ask you is how have you seen Aaron Ramsdale's progression over the course of this season? Because he's he feels to me like he's really kind of taken the next step. Yeah, he's, he's grown up. He's... I think I think it's helped with the the confidence that the players in front of him can give him, but I think his concentration has come on leaps and bounds. You know, that he's maybe seeing less of the ball when it comes to shot stopping, but he seems to always be in the game more and he makes key saves, you know. He made key saves against Leeds, he made key saves against Bournemouth, he made key saves against Villa. It feels like he is now starting to become the guy that we sort of hoped for where he was always a good volume shot stopper. You know, he used to make the most saves in relegation sides, but now he's becoming a, not an elite shot stopper, but a shot stopper that is capable of making elite saves and making, you know, high percentage saves when we need him. And he keeps us in games when we, we, by necessity of our system, we concede uh, big chances, you know, because of our high lines. So mm-hmm. he really has become sort of the player that 
I think Arsenal specifically had in mind when they signed him. I know a lot of fans didn't like the signing, but he's sort of, well, he's he's paid that back several times over now. It was such an unknown quantity, wasn't he? Um, I think that sometimes players, especially goalkeepers, are unfairly blemished by, like, unfairly blemished and also unfairly um, uh, kind of adulated by their team's triumphs yeah. in the same way that Aaron Ramsdale getting player of the season but getting relegated at clubs doesn't really reflect that badly on Aaron Ramsdale, but it does reflect badly on the team as a whole. The same way, mm-hmm. even though I think Nick Pope has been really good this season, I don't think he's been anywhere close to the best keeper this season because I think that probably the bigger cause of it is the fact that defensively Newcastle are an incredible team this season. So I think you know there's always that yeah. balance to be taken. But it just felt like when you're signing a keeper that's just been relegated to the championship, understandably there's going to be a bit of unrest and a bit of let's wait and see. But the the reaction to signing him, I, I did feel at the time was was a bit over the top because you always want, when it's an unknown quantity and it's a bit of a mystery signing, you want to at least give him a bit of time to, to settle in. And I think goalkeepers and defenders are a bit like that where sometimes their stats and their performances can be affected a bit unfairly by the team. I remember Robertson playing for Hull the season before he went to Liverpool and he was terrible and Hull went down and every stat for Robertson was, was absolutely horrendous. And then Liverpool signed him for what, seven, eight million. And within a year and a half, two years, he's suddenly um, one of the best, if not the best left back in the world at one point. So it just goes to show yeah, I think, that I think you can't judge it by its cover. Yeah. You know, I think it's so situational with centre-backs, full-backs and goalkeepers, you know, when you're looking at fullbacks, like Newcastle, Robertson would have to do a lot of defending. Uh, sorry, Hull, Newcastle would have to do a lot of defending. Newcastle, Robertson would have to do a lot of defending. <laughs> wow, my brain's all over the place. Um, <laughs> and he's not necessarily a excellent defender. And at Hull, he would not get the opportunities to you know rampage down the left flank mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So yeah. you're looking at a very small percentage of his game that Liverpool have taken, magnified and enhanced. And he's suddenly world class. And those are the bits, you know, you don't need to necessarily look at the wider picture for signing them because, you know, putting Harry Maguire in a high line Manchester United side, for instance, while his <laughs> metrics at Leicester may be excellent, doing that is a, you know, a recipe for disaster, despite the fact that he might win 96% of his duels and, you know, whichever other stats you want to use to bring out how good he is. It's so defending is so situational depending on whether you play like a high line or a lower block or you know whether you're having to face 10 shots a game or one shot a game where those shots are from you know I feel like it's a real gray area where stats can be useful but they're so they can they can also be so misleading because as you say like every team's different and every player and every team is you know used differently by different managers and all this stuff. So I, I always thought you're right. Ramsdale got a bit of a harsh rep, I think, when he came in. Because why would you sign a goalkeeper from a team that's been relegated? Even if he has made the most saves, they've most likely conceded, you know, among the most goals in the Premier League. And he's had all this, you know, he's been relegated twice. So that's twice as bad. So you can understand why, but there were always like silver linings for him to be a very good goalkeeper. And I think that this season, those have, been you know magnified and expanded upon yeah I think that this um, is another thing that Arteta's been fantastic at is 
when you're buying players to suit your system rather than buying quality of players overall, then it always feels like there's a plan with it. Like like Ramsdale was bought for a reason and it just felt like every player pretty much that we've signed in recent history has been bought for a particular reason. Um, that would be a good place to leave off. There's one more question I want to ask you, just a bit of a bonus question that isn't related to, to Liverpool versus Arsenal. It's um, just because today we've seen reports coming out about um, following Balogun saying that he may want a starting place at Arsenal next season and whether or not it's, it's best time to cash in or not. So just, just to give it like a bit of summary, this is a guy who you can see the talent he has. He is 21. He will be 22 in July. He's um, on 18 goals um, in Ligue 1 at the moment. He could very, very potentially hit 20 plus in Ligue 1 this season. That does come with a certain prestige and a certain price tag. Also, this is a player that could potentially feature in one or two positions in Arsenal's front three. Um, it's hard to really know what the play is here because how do you assess this? This is a potentially very, very good talent, but how good? Because like, just for instance, maybe not the best example, but we we sell um, Joe Willock for between 30, 35 mil or something like that. Um, and then we sign Odegaard for a very, very similar price. Like that at times when you're building a team, you have to sell talented players, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to sell every talented player. So obviously it's a case by case basis. So just to end off this pod, in your opinion, what is the the best play to do for, for Balogun this summer? Is um is it a, a stay or go? I think go probably suits all parties. Um and how much money do we get for him? Uh, six, it's tough, 50, isn't it? 60 million. 50 million, Maybe. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. I think you're looking at a, a 20 goal striker in a top five European league, but the market that you're looking at is so small. If he leaves England, it won't be for very much money. Yeah. Uh, you know, it might be for 40, 45 million. Or if he stays in England, you risk, you run the risk of, you know, him becoming a really, really good Premier League striker at a rival, Chelsea mm-hmm. or whoever else needs a striker. So, I suppose it depends how much you value the money versus where you value him playing. Personally, I'd be happy to sell him to AC Milan or whatever, 45 million, have a buyback in if you can. But if he, if his value's only going, his value's only going to decrease from now. Yeah. You know, this is the highest. It's, it's like Willock. He's going to come back to Arsenal and not be first choice, not be playing every minute of every game. And he won't be as incredible, you know? Yeah. So, um... I'm really stuck on this, to be honest, because I can't make up in my brain how good he actually is. Because I've seen some of the games from Reims um, where he has looked very good. Like you can see his ability to run into space is brilliant. Like his the variety in kind of finishes he has is brilliant. Obviously, that raw pace is unbelievable. It does feel like he has that physicality and that kind of baseline technical ability that he can combine with other people. I do feel like he has the potential to get ahead of Inketia if he wanted to be, but obviously not sure if that's really going to be the case. I do feel like he can kind of be back up, not just to Jesus, but also to kind of Martinelli in that left wing position. Um, I do think that he has that profile where coming in off the left-hand side could suit him. But at the same time, Arsenal are going to do big business this summer. And it's not feasible 
to expect Arsenal to spend 150 mil every summer without making money back. And we've been very, very, very bad at making money back in recent seasons. Eventually, we're going to have to sell a player we like. So I'd be interested to see how Arteta assesses him. I think, obviously, you've got to bring him back for preseason, have a look at him, have a talk with him. Because this time last season, we may have been saying a similar thing about Saliba. And he's come in, maybe slightly unexpectedly, gone straight into the first eleven and become a mainstay. So hard to make any definitive position. But I will say that if we can get 45 to 50 million for him, something like that, then I wouldn't be against um, selling him abroad just because, um, as you say, I think that the thought of him going to a Premier League club, even if we're going to get an extra 10, 50 million on top of that, is maybe a bit too risky for me. But yeah. if we can sell him 45 to 50 million for a team like like the AC Inters of the world, I don't know um, what other clubs could potentially be interested in him. If we can sell them to, to them for that kind of money and reinvest it into the positions that are maybe a, a bit more needed, like like obviously the, the Rice and the Caicedos of the world, um, then I do think that eventually we're going to have to do stuff like that. Um, uh, I do think that's probably... That's, we'll, we'll leave it there because um, uh, this is a bit of a, a mystery thing, isn't it? Like we don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's hard to really assess yeah. without knowing. I reckon, I reckon you could have a whole podcast about Balogun. And you never know, maybe we yeah. will at some point. But, yeah, it would um, surprise me, actually. I mean, as I say, this could be a guy that scores 20 goals in the, in the French League. Yeah, like, yeah. But, and, then, uh, but then Lacazette has 18, so... <laughs> yeah, what is that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that does kind of <laughs> does kind of put a poo forward it a little bit, doesn't it? But, I mean, a good thing to kind of... Someone commented on um, on the Twitter post, um, Josh from uh, Burkamp Wonderland, said he compared it a bit to the Ekatike deal, where... He went to PSG on loan with, from what I read um, online, it's 35 million euros added yeah. bonuses after season long loan. And he scored 10 goals in the league that season. So Balogun could very easily double that. So it'd be very interesting to see what the market is. As you say, like it's hard to know what clubs are going to have money in the summer and what positions they're looking at. Usually goals does cost money. Um it's the hardest position in the in the team to kind of source. So if he can prove to be a reliable goal scorer, then you never know who's going to be in for him. Um, yeah, yeah. I say, it's just it's just about who has the money and how much money they're willing. Like, mm-hmm. there's this isn't the sort of selling to England from abroad where you can fetch a hundred million or ninety million. We'd all love that, and his you know you can argue about whether. He's got more talent than Mudrick or whoever else you want to bring in for a hundred million, but feasibly it's not going to happen. And you people will say, "Oh, well, don't sell him then," but then you don't get anything, and you sell mm. him next summer when his contract's got twelve months left for, you know, twenty-five million rather than forty-five. There will be there will be people unhappy this summer. There were people saying that we've sold for too little, or we shouldn't have ever sold <laughs> him, or we should have sold him when we did, and we should never have kept him, and you know. What, no matter what happens, people are going to be unhappy because it's always so much easier to dream up scenarios where something different happens and it seems to work out better. But the reality tends to be quite different, I find. Yeah. To be honest, like when, when I'm thinking right now of the teams could potentially go to, I'm thinking of like like in terms of like profile and style, I'm thinking of him in, in the Atletico Madrid's team mm. under Diego yeah, yeah. Simeone. And I really kind of... It wouldn't surprise me if at this point in time, because like Simeone's signed a few players from the Premier League in recent years. It wouldn't surprise me if he's kind of 
watching this thing develop and thinking maybe because and, and they've signed some big players, especially if they were to sell Jao Felix in the summer, there might be. A well, yeah, that's there. the thing that depends on whether Jao Felix is sold, and you know, there'll be a yeah. lot of movements this summer because, for instance, Harry, you know, if 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 United don't get Harry Kane and they end up going for, I don't know, uh, Victor Osman or Randall Colo Moani, then all of a sudden. Whoever sells that striker has a lot of money to sit on and a need to find <laughs> goals. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we see Balogun go later in the window as like a later, later domino, maybe rather yeah. than maybe an early move to someone who has some money set aside for the summer. But we don't really know what the market's going to be like for strikers at that point. Yeah, no, bang on. I think that's um that's a good place to leave it. Um, I guess in summary, like. In terms of the Liverpool game, it's one of those games that we didn't want one point. We wanted three. When it comes down to it, maybe we needed three. We'll have to wait and see. But obviously, we we don't have any time to kind of have our heads down and and kind of um, be sad about it. We have to um, get back up. West Ham on Sunday. Um, we'll have a preview pod coming out for that in the week. So stay tuned for that. Um, other than that, thanks so much for listening. Uh, my name's Luke. You can find me on Twitter at Eckleton. Um, Ben's joined me as well. You can find him on Twitter at Ben Browning Free. And uh, we'll be back soon. And thanks for listening to the uh, second match review pod of Bruised Banana FC. Thanks very much. Erdogan is joining in. And he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the wrist and touched in by Jesus! Oh, Saka. Yes. Oh, yes.